Hello and welcome to episode 150 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. So here we are, episode 150. The perfect place, perhaps, to wrap this entire thing up. This entire journey from the past two and a half years. But no, we still have plenty more guests still to come to tell their stories of the Jam, the Star Council and Paul Weller. And we have got an absolute cracker for 150. What better way to mark the occasion than an episode with the elusive producer, Brendan Lynch. From working with the Star Council towards the end of their life cycle to creating a series of outstanding solo album releases with Paul Weller. We're talking that debut solo album, Wildwood, Stanley Road, Heavy Soul, Heliocentric. He also produced for Primal Scream, Ocean Colour Scene, 2220s, Carlene Anderson and more. One thing we've learned on this journey so far is that a music producer is not merely a technician. They're an artistic collaborator. They guide, they shape, they enhance the artist's vision. They obviously have that keen ear for detail. They possess the technical expertise to transform raw musical elements into a cohesive, engaging listening experience. And a producer can bring out the best in an artist pushing them to explore new territories while staying true to their unique style. It's all about creating this great environment for creativity and the perfect sonic landscape for each song. Microphone placements, recording techniques, how you capture the desired mood and energy, an absolute vital role in shaping the sound of an artist on record. And they're kind of like unsung heroes, really. As listeners, we do owe a debt of gratitude to these people. They work tirelessly behind the scenes as a trusted advisor, giving a fresh perspective, making sure that each instrument and vocal performance is captured flawlessly. They're balancing the mix. They're adjusting the levels, the frequency to create a compelling and immersive sonic experience. And when you think about those albums that I've talked about, Brendan Lynch is such a key part of that sound in my mind. And not just that, those stunning remixes as well that we got on the B-sides, do you remember? Cosmos, SX Dub 2000, or the Lynch Mob bonus beats, or that stunning Lynch Mob dub of Sunflower, and even Science with the Psychonauts, a Lynch Mob remix. I loved all this stuff. Honestly, it's a real delight to dig into some of these memories with Brendan Lynch. Episode 150, let's get into it. Brendan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for asking me. I'm really delighted to be here. As somebody who discovered Mr. Weller in the solo years, Aha, oh yeah, was my first in- entry into Paul Weller, and then obviously oh, all the back catalog and that. Yeah, you were right up there on one, of, you know, top of my list, man. So, um, so this is going to be great. Thank you, thank you. Now, I want to kick off first of all with understanding how you got into this bonkers, crazy music industry because it didn't. The story doesn't start with Mr. Weller, but was this something that you knew from a school age? You wanted to be engineering in studios. What? Where did it come from? No, I wanted to be in a band. You know, I, I used to play drums, and when the the punk thing happened, it made it possible, you know, to be in a band and just uh, and just play your own stuff. And uh, so, what were your what were your punk bands, man? My favorite ones. Uh, Buzzcocks, Clash, Jam, Pistols. In that order? Not really, no. I think the Buzzcocks might be the top one, though. So you were you in punk bands as well then at school? Yeah, no one you would have heard of. Just school bands, you know, playing all the usual places like the Rock Garden and the 
local pubs and stuff like that. So you would have been, what, similar age to these bands? Well, I would have been younger. I mean, um, obviously, Paul was pretty young anyway when he started, but I would have been 14, 15, 13, yeah, when the Pistols started. So, yeah, so around that time, that's when... And did you get to see any of those bands live? I buzzcocks a couple of times. They're amazing. Yeah, I saw The Jam and uh, didn't see The Pistols. Clash, I saw. Yeah, most of them. Yeah, and, and you felt that you could be part of something. It was a bit of a movement, I suppose, although it was all... There were lots of things happening around the country. And it was just so exciting. There was new singles coming out every week and things happening really fast. That was the most exciting thing. From the jam point of view, they seem to be releasing singles, albums, touring all the time. That was in a short period of time, just constant, wasn't it? But when did you discover the jam then? Was it like early days? Yeah, a friend put me onto them some point in 77, maybe towards the end of that year. I really loved them. You know, I, I was into the 60s stuff anyway, Kinks and um, a few of the other bands. So, um, and The Who, you know, I could see the connection. I was always into music. So, um, you know, all sorts of music, folk, Irish folk music mainly when I was a kid. It wasn't really year zero in that respect. That's quite unusual in terms of that taste and that influence. Is that from the family? Yeah. Yeah. No, my, um, in terms of the Irish traditional stuff, there's a big sort of Irish traditional music scene in London. And my dad got us into it, took us to music classes. And, and that's how we, um, sort of played at different events and, and it was, yeah, it was nice. good. It was nice. Growing up, a lot of music in the household. Yeah, it's it's yeah. a big thing, right? A lot of Johnny Cash, uh, Charlie Pride, all those sorts of country artists. So the band thing doesn't happen. At some point, you have to give up that dream of, of you know, in terms of the big time from that and, and focus more on the engineering tech side yeah. of things, yeah? A band I was in, we got a, a little day in the BBC studio in, in Maida Vale uh, with Dale from um, Mott the Hoople. Drummer from Mott the Hoople, yeah, and, and he was engineering it. And as soon as I walked in, that was the first studio I'd been. As soon as I walked in, I thought, this is what I want to do. It was so exciting. Not a bad studio to start with, right? Yeah. (laughs) The history is soaked in the walls, yeah. Yeah, and then I, you know, I carried on playing, but I tried, I got some jobs in studios, tried to get a job as an assistant, which I did. What was it about that world that you thought, you know, I really need to be a part of them. Is we had Jezar on the podcast, who's obviously the Style Council engineer. Oh yeah, prior to you coming to Solid Bond, yeah. and you know, we joked a bit about how it, uh, you know quite a bit of it is about plugging leads and picking the right leads. And yeah. but yeah, you know, what was it? Because it doesn't sound like the sexiest job in the world, does it? But what was it that that really attracted you to that? Um, it's just the fact that you're in a room with um, three or four other people, and you're making, you're creating something. I just loved it. You know, I I lost track of time. I wasn't interested in having a, uh, a dinner break or a meal break. I just wanted to be there. And it was, yeah, I just loved it. It was just the right thing for me. There is something magical, isn't there, about, yeah. you know, you're starting off at the beginning of the day and you don't have a song. And then at the end of the day, you've got this thing fleshed. It's just remarkable, yeah. really. Yeah, and the fact that um, that it comes out as well and, and it's released and, and, yeah. and you get a vinyl at the end of the day, that was that was a big part of it as well. Yeah, that physical thing, which thankfully is coming back again now, but we've been living in a world of MP3 for probably the last 10 years or so, but mm. you know, vinyl making this huge big comeback. So, yeah. so let's talk about some of those early studios then that you were part of. So did you, how, how soon was it before you got yourself a permanent job versus that work experience? I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty quick. I just got a job in the couple of studios, one in Holloway Road called Music Works that did a lot of heavy metal sort of stuff, which I didn't really like, but so I didn't stay long there. And then. 
I went to um, a place called R.G. Jones in Wimbledon, which was a really nice studio. I did all sorts of stuff. In a week, I might work with four or five different artists, all different sorts of people, from Cliff Richard to the, uh, I don't know, um, adult net and beyond, you know, so. Let's get into how you linked up with Mr. Weller for the first time. And I mean, this takes bustle. Tell me this story, because it's, it's similar to Tom, who's in the band currently, where you just rang up, right? Yeah, I just rang up the studio. And said, because I, I, I wasn't, you know, I'd, I'd been at the other place a while and I, I needed to move on. So it was a bit, a little bit middle of the road, although we were doing some edgy stuff. But, um, yeah, and I just rang up and I think it was Jez had just left. I've never met him, but I think he, he just literally left that week and they said, come along. Yeah, yeah, we've got a uh, space. And I went along the next in a couple of days. Paul met me outside and we went and had a coffee and that was it. Why did you target that studio or that, I mean, what, the studio itself had a huge amount of history at that point as well, didn't it? So this oh, is, so, this yeah. is Solid Bond and, um, Style Council HQ, but you know, amazing artists like Dusty Springboard and people. So did you target the studio or did you target your love of Paul and the music yeah, he was well, creating yeah, at that point? I, yeah, I targeted Paul because I, you know, he always made great records and it was always seemed, it was always moving on and interesting. I never thought I'd get it or even get a reply, but it was just good timing. That's amazing, isn't it? I love that. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it's all about timing. This whole thing, you know, for so many is is all about timing. And um, so you love the Style Council. That was a big thing for you as well then, was it? Yeah. Yeah. I really liked a lot of their stuff. Shout to the top. I think still sounds amazing on the radio, isn't it? So this was off the back of, so they just released Confessions then. Yeah. So this is what, 88? off the back of that. Jezza's moved right. on, like you say. This is like September 88, yeah. So Paul and Mick are about to start work on what they thought would be the Style Council's, what, fifth studio album proper? Yeah. And they're getting really into this garage house sound that's coming out yeah. of the States, yeah? And was that something you were into as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, probably I've heard a bit of it, but when I started working with them, it was really like, wow. We'd start each day and they'd just play records. I mean, that's what it was so good working at that studio. So you just go in, they'd play. And that, you know, it was really good fun. That feels like um, very different to other studio setups. I mean, at that time, there were a lot of studios around, obviously, but other yeah. studio setups wouldn't have been set up that way, right? No. no. I mean, obviously, because it was Paul's studio, it was his own place, so he could he could probably spend more time indulging in stuff like that. People would turn up all the time, DJs with records. It was really, really creative space. No, that's exactly what you want, isn't it? It's like, yeah. you know, if you're going to create great work. And I guess that they're not tied to the clock in terms of studio time. That, you know, it's their own space. They can, you know, do what they that's want. Right. And that connects with so much of the story that we dig, we'll dig into around the solo years and, you know, these residencies, the manor and things like that. But how quickly did you connect with Paul and Mick? Were you, cause they were going out clubbing. They were soaking up all this house music quite a bit. Did you get to experience that with them? No, I didn't do any of the clubbing or anything with them. Probably went out a few times. They were totally like, totally engrossed in it and sort of, and they were also into sort of jazz as well you know be a lot of blue note records being played and there is a connection between you know still r&b isn't it all that stuff so yeah i didn't really go out with them a lot though obviously around that time there's a lot of music still being produced there's that album that we talk about which is modernism and we'll talk about the fact it didn't get released there's also the single which did come out promised land and then there's there's also this little acid jazz thing king truman so what what was what was the first thing let me think um might have been King Truman first. 
and that obviously was a bit of a sneaky little project, right? So yeah. this is this is the Style Council, but not the Style Council. You know, by a different name. It's um, Eddie Pillar has has been on the podcast and talks oh, about this. Kind of, when they were making it, was it all a bit like hush hush? This is under the radar type thing. I can't actually remember. I mean, at that time, they were doing various tracks all the time. So every day we'd come in and do something. It, I wasn't quite sure what it was for or whether or what it was leading to. It was just more stuff, you know, more ideas and being being creative and trying new things so i can't actually remember but yeah it definitely came out on acid jazz in the end didn't it yeah well it did and then it was withdrawn that was a thing so um yeah paul and mick have got these pseudonyms which is i think one of them's the truman king other was yeah. elliot arnold and then um yeah because obviously they're under contract or paul is under contract to polydor i think they they signed a what was it they signed a contract with mix <laughs> so it was under his name but then the whole thing got withdrawn there was a huge big fight about it anyway it didn't, didn't come out yeah, right. Right. and then obviously modernism so i mean there are some cracking we do get to hear modernism in 1998 as part of this wonderful style council box set but obviously the album gets rejected famously and the style council then disband and all that but there are some terrific tracks on. i was listening to yeah. it again there's some really good tracks on that that album aren't there yeah there's a track called um sure is sure which i thought up until that point was the best thing i'd ever worked on you know i really love that it's a really interesting song and full singing on it it's Great. I really like there's a song called Can You Still Love Me? Yeah, can you, yeah. That's Which is right. an absolute cracker. And even that spiritual feeling. So this is one where isn't was it James Brown's brass section? Yeah. Yeah, they all they all rolled in one day. They all pretty old guys, you know. But boy could they play. Incredible. So what's that like Pee Wee Ellis and um who's else? Yeah. Fred Wesley and people like that. Yeah, yeah, Fred Wesley was there, yeah, and a few of the others, yeah. Wow, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and it was great because uh, the whole James Brown thing was really big thing at that time, you know. Steve White's not really around so much at that point then on that album. That's right. No, Steve wasn't around at the start when I started working with Paul. I think when he, probably when we did the solo stuff, Into Tomorrow and stuff like that. Yeah, he'd have, they'd have reconnected. Yeah. So the Star Council at that point really is Paul, it's Mick, DC Lee was on that album, Kamel Hines, and Marco Nelson was involved in that project a lot. Yeah, Marco, it? yeah. Marco was always around. Um, his band, Young Disciples, used to record at the studio as well, as you probably know. And all that crew, as I said, they'd be popping in and out. It was a bit like a youth club, you know. Did you have the pool tables or the table tennis and all that? Uh, we didn't. Uh, no, we didn't have any of that. <laughs> table football. <laughs> uh, right. So obviously that doesn't come out. The King Truman doesn't probably come out. So you must, I mean, that must be really frustrating. You're doing all this great work with Weller, but it's not seeing the light of day. Yeah, I mean, I was particularly, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was really shame that the um, Modernism album didn't, didn't come out because uh, that was, uh, it was all finished. You know, we Put it all on tape, mixed it all, and uh, I was I was really looking forward to the release. But um, had it gone to like test pressings and stuff? I would have thought so. Yeah. God, Paul wow, that's did. amazing, isn't it? It's like goes that far, and then the artwork and things like that. It's like immense. yeah, yeah. Paul would be working on the artwork as the album is progressing, you know. So he's he's on it all the time. And Mick had talked about them both kind of feeling that that was the end of the style counts anyway. So even before the record had been rejected, it maybe had you know run its course and they they were going to call it a day off the album. So for it then to not get released anyway, it just seemed yeah. you know, mad. Well, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. But yeah, it was a shame it, it wasn't released for everybody, really. So you mentioned Solid Bond and working there with other... So Young Disciples, actually, you were co-producer on that on that debut album and Mick Talbot, Carleen Anderson involved in that and you, you, yeah. you, you're involved with them quite a bit. So that was all at Solid Bond as well, right? That's all at Solid Bond. Yeah. They liked working there and we all knew each other. So it, it was, it was an easy fit, you know, 
for the young disciples, we were starting a whole new thing, you know. And Carlene was such a big um, personality and talent that everybody stepped up when she walked in the room, you know. So, <laughs> really? We've got to be on our A game now. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. She could do everything, you know. She could sing, she could play. She's one of the best percussion players I've ever heard. Oh, really? I'm hoping she'll come on the podcast. We're talking about yeah. that because um, she's doing some really interesting work around an opera that she's creating at the moment. And um, I'll have to mention the percussion. Paul, at this point, has talked a little bit about almost like he's out in the wilderness and it felt like this is a long period of time. But actually, in reality, it's not really. We're talking about maybe like 18 months, perhaps. Talk me through that first solo album and how you get involved in that because you're obviously still connected with Paul. Solid Bond still exists? Yeah, I mean, I'm not totally sure about dates now. It was around the early 90s. Is it either 90 or 91 that the studio closed down? Could have been 92, I really don't, I can't remember. But Paul had just been working on new stuff. He'd been working on a track called Here's a New Thing. Oh, I love that song. That was kind of earmarked as a single, maybe. I don't know what it was, if it was at the start of the album. He was just doing tracks, you know, more like singles. And then we, um, there was a back room at Solid Bond. Young Disciples were in the main room, so Paul and I were doing demos in the back room. And it was around Christmas time or so. It was, it was, it was a really bad snowfall and we couldn't get home. Oh, so you're stranded in the studio. Yeah. So we just carried on working. And that particular session, we did that track into tomorrow or the demo for it. It went really, really well. And in fact, the, the guitar solo that we did in that back room onto my little eight track mach- machine is the one that ends up on the record. No way. Yeah. It's the actual same because we obviously re-recorded the track with a full band. We eventually got a cab home and I remember Paul um, getting out of the cab and he looked back, shook my hand and said, thanks. I could tell he got it back again. He got his mojo back that night. It could have been game over. It is for so many artists. You know, obviously there's yeah. a lot of great material to jam the style council, but that's enough often for a music career for most, right? Mm-hmm. It could, and it could have been, that, that could have been it. But I love the yeah. fact that you're, you're snowed in. And that's the point. Literally, the mojo returns as for the song. That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank goodness for bad weather in the UK, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we might not be having this conversation otherwise. There was a bit of work around that time at Black Barn as well, I think. Yeah, we went to Black Barn and we did um, Amongst Butterflies. We did a few, but that's the one I remember. That, that, that was the next important track, I think. We were just sort of trying to develop the sound and make something sort of unique and special. And, I think that that's a really nice track. Really love it. And can you remember did Paul have something in mind? I mean, you mentioned these might not even lead into an album, but did Paul have something in mind in terms of the type of sound he? Because he's obviously moved away quite quickly from the house garage thing. Yeah. Had, he, had that been like that was a moment in time? Parks that were moving on to the next thing. Yeah, we just it was just to try and um, play play live again with a band and get very natural sounds. So we didn't want any clicky bass drums. We didn't want to big smashy snare drum you know sort of left over from the 80s which was still pretty much around then so we didn't want the indie sound and we didn't want the pop bombastics we just want to be very natural and i suppose that is sort of harking back to early the 70s and 60s sounds it's not just down to the live band it's what you're you're doing something in the studio for that effect right? yeah yeah i mean we really concentrated on getting really good bass sounds or a lot of bottom end for the you know, with the bass drum and bass and trying to make them work together. We'd spend a lot of time setting up the sound as the band were playing. So we set up the sound, maybe take us a whole day just to get it right. But the great thing was that when they played, that was pretty much the record. Sound didn't change. And obviously we got better at it 
myself and the engineer Max that I worked with, we we got better at it as we um as we went along. It was important that it sounded pretty much as it was gonna finish up. And also when you do overdubs on a track that's that's not gonna change, they actually make more sense. You know, because I think a lot of records, even now, people will slam loads of stuff down, then they pull the faders down and start with the bass drum and build it all up and, and do a mix. But for us, we wanted to hear the song. Didn't really want it to change that much. Did that make it a quick process? Or, I mean, apart okay. from the setup and stuff, but you could, you could be yeah. quite, quite quick in yeah. terms of creating the album or the yeah. but Yeah, really quick, especially as a lot of times Paul did live vocals as well. So he'd play the guitar or piano and sing at the same time. And of course, that just saves you loads of time, vocals at the end of the album, which a lot of people did. One of the things I wanted to talk about with you was the use of samples on some of these records and things like Cosmos, for instance. At what stage during a song are you thinking about? Is this like, this is the start of a song and you build on it? Or is it things you go, this needs something, I'm going to go out in the car park and record a police siren? Some of them start with um, ideas from samples and then the samples might be discarded. No, so it's a bit like a band playing their favourite song and then it morphs into something else. So they've got the groove or they've made end up. But so yeah, sometimes it started with samples. Sometimes, um, I just add things, you know, I had, I had quite a big, I was always collecting things and I just tried different things in various places. And, uh, we might either use it or as I said, we might, it, it might give you an idea to, a different type of overdose. Obviously, this is all on tape, right? So this is, you know, we're not yet on digital computers and layering things um, up, are we? Actually, I think the first album was was uh, on a digital machine, Sony Digital. And I think Wildwood was probably not, and Stanley Road. And yeah. can you remember where the 54321 on Cosmos came from, that countdown? Do you remember that? Yeah, it's from one of those NASA space records. <laughs> was this just what you were listening to at the time? I really love these sound effects CDs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but again, I think I think Paul um, brought that in. Yeah, he was bringing lots of stuff. You know, he had loads of ideas, or you know, he's got a great ear. Obviously, I think oh, he obviously just thought he might suit that song, Cosmos. So. And we'll talk more about that song in a sec because we have to talk about the remixes. But I think one of the things about that debut album is. I mean, it still sounds up sonically. It's, it's a terrific LP. I don't think this is just the fact that I discovered Paul around that time and it means most of Because you talk yeah. to all fans, it's like, actually, that, that debut solo album is a terrific piece of work, isn't it? But commercially, it wasn't a massive success, but it did set him up for what came next, which was huge. So Wildwood and Stanley Road. Let's talk about those LPs. So this yeah. was all at the Manor. So we moved studios to the Manor studio in Oxfordshire, which was like a residence. It's, you get to stay there as well. Yeah, we just go and stay there. Everyone would live at in the uh in the studio and that they'd have you know you all have your own room and it was really great because you get loads done you didn't have to go home to your other life and your mind stayed focused as well it was a really good way to work for us at that time and you got all these characters popping in so people like um i think carlene's on stanley road isn't she dr yeah. robert gets involved you know, yeah. i imagine you're they're playing throughout the day but then are they then they're getting an early night and it's you and Paul cracking on into the early hours with the production and the mixing and Yeah, I mean it depends. I mean I think at, at the start we'd be um we'd be laying down the backing tracks with drums, bass, probably um a keyboard player and maybe maybe Steve Craddock would come along later on Stanley Road. So then there'd be more people around. But we might do those backing tracks for maybe two or three or four days and then everyone would go home and then we'd 
carry on with the overdubs, either with additional musicians or Paul actually played a lot of stuff. Because he's, he's thought now about working very differently to how he did then, where in the sense that, you know, that time I think songs were a bit more, the lyrics were a bit more kind of fully formed before he brought them to, yeah. to the party, right? Again, it must be, I mean, as a fan, that must be an amazing experience where you've got this guy bringing in these new songs and these new lyrics to, to work with. Yeah, I mean, and because I was with him all the time, I just didn't know when he did it, when he had time to do it. Because <laughs> um, well, also there's quite a bit of partying going on as well, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a, a little bit, but I figured out later he did it he used to do it late at night. He likes working and everyone's asleep, you know, and he's on his own. And I'd be thinking, when's he done that? I, I saw him two days ago. He's got a new song, you know. And did it feel like from, you know, like like you mentioned that mojo being back, but did it feel like suddenly we're, you know, something's really building here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all those three albums, first three albums just sound, just feel like one record to me because we never stopped working, even in between them. He was always doing demos and we, we pretty much do, we do three or four demos before we went in and recorded them properly. And the first demo would be put down in five minutes, just a my little A track machine, bang it down, da 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 da, try a few overdubs and that's it. And then the next one be a bit more refined, maybe arrangement things. And then the next one would be closer to where we would end up. So when we finally went in the studio, we were ready. And also Paul would play him live sometimes. And that made such a difference especially on Stanley Road. The B-sides were cracking. And I mean, there was so much material, like you yeah. say. And you'd get all these radio sessions and he'd play things that then weren't on singles or out. It's like there was just seems to be so many songs that mm. were like, like things like The Loves and This Is No Time. Terrific songs yeah. that were yeah. hidden away. And you're kind of like, this is, these are absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah. Let's talk Wildwood, the single, the song. Yeah, you know, it's been one of the most popular on this podcast um, in terms of people mentioning, and you actually play a bit on it as well. So I think some of these songs, you know, you, you're also bringing out your musical chops in terms of getting to to play. So this was a Mellotron, which is like a it's like a type of keyboard, but also a type of like an like a early sampler type thing, right? Yeah, it's just um, uh, it's a, a keyboard. It's got a tape inside for each key, and they all play play the relevant notes sample only lasts so long maybe seven or eight seconds but as long as you change the note it'll it'll start the note again so um yeah so uh, yeah i mean i played yeah three-part harmony at the end of wildwood which i i mean i I think wildwood's probably my favorite song i've done with paul i think it's a great performance i think it's as close as as we got to me to having it yeah i don't think i changed anything on that one Nice. Didn't John Weller have a word with you about this? Because I, th- I read that you were working on it late at night or something, and they'd gone out oh, and yeah. they came back. What did he say? Oh, oh no, we came back from from the pub, and that's when I did. I said, "Max, put the tape on. I've got an idea for the." And John came in and said, "Don't break it or something. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't break it, whatever you do." <laughs> Let's all remixes. So, as a producer, where do you get your inspiration from? I've seen you mention people like Lee Scratch Perry, who I've got into it like in a really ridiculously big way in the yeah. past few months and lapping up every single bit of vinyl, cost me a fortune. But people like John Meek, you've mentioned Funkadelic. As a producer, outside of the music, the love of music, were you digging into kind of inspiration in that area as well? Yeah, I mean, I was just listening to loads of stuff, reading as many books about them as I could as well, just to find out any tips, you know, because the, the it wasn't sort of media onslaught you get now where everything is on the, they can find a film about nearly everybody now. But at that time, there, there wasn't so much information. Yeah. And I, I really loved all that stuff and just uh, tried to incorporate some of those ideas 
so this love of dub presumably comes from yeah. Lee Perry, right? And we get these yeah. these wonderful remixes, all right? We, and we get these on the singles. So, you know, we're buying the singles. On there is a B-side. And I don't know which way round they were in terms of production, but there was one on the Sunflower single. We get Cosmos yeah. XX Dub 2000, which is just absolutely wonderful. An awesome version. I was listening to that earlier today. It's incredible. And I love the way that you've taken the female vocals on it and, and really made a big part of them for the song. I think that's probably Dee because she she's on the original record. Yeah, we just had some loads of mad stuff happening. I just sampled all the stuff off off the track into my sampler and started replaying it as loops, and that's how it all kicked off. And was this was just what you and Max just messing about and thinking, or you know, think, thinking this would end up somewhere? Or um, no, no, Paul Paul did want us to do a remix. He just said to me, "Do um, you didn't say which particular track?" And I just, as I said, that's when I did all the looping up and just started messing about with it. And when we did it, we just did it as a bit of fun. I mean, I didn't really, I don't really take the remixes that seriously. They're just a bit of fun for me. And it's just where you can let your your hair down and go a bit crazy. I read that this got picked up though by it was Andy Weatherall who played it. So playing it at the end of one apparently, of his sets, yeah, that <laughs> yeah. Apparently, yeah, he used to play it at his um, at his nights. That's how I ended up with working with Primal Scream, actually, because they heard that track and they wanted to... Right, I thought it probably would have been, yeah. Wanted a similar type of remix or or whatever, you know. But And we'd always get these things that were called, you know, it was the Lynch Mob um, yeah. bonus beats or the Lynch yeah, Mob yeah, yeah. dub. I think there was a version of Sunflower on the outside of the Sinking Single, which is, yeah, the Lynch Mob dub of Sunflower. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So Lynch Mob was you, your own thing that you set up with you and Max, or was this just you? Or? Well, it was just a name for, for me, really, but, you know, obviously Max was involved in, in most of it as well. It was a name that, uh, if you if you look on the first Young Disciples album, they've actually put that title for me so oh, i didn't notice that right yeah okay. so they actually chose it and put it on so it wasn't i can't take credit for that idea they put the name on and they just stuck after that let's talk stanley road next a huge massive success obviously and an album that everybody seemed to have in their collection at the time I've got a bunch of questions from the fans that I said I'd ask you on the podcast and then some of the relations to this. And actually, Mick Talbot, let's kick off with him. Broken Stones, Mick Talbot from the Style Council, your your good friend. He said, I love Broken Stones and was really pleased to plan it. Brendan, I know you're on accordion on that one too. I think you're on tambourine on that as well, by the way. But anyway, he says, was it your idea not to have any guitars on the track? As I think that's a big part of the song's unique atmosphere. No, it wasn't my idea. It was... Uh it actually started off as a guitar track, and then Paul said, let's, let's, let's try and whirl it, sir. He literally sat down at the whirly, played it for a, a played like intro and first verse, and then said to Steve, play this sort of beat, which Steve did, and we had the track in the next 10 minutes. <laughs> That's mental. Yeah. yeah. To be that good at anything is yeah. like, amazes me, but the fact that you can do that in 10 minutes really quick then we would have overdubbed the other stuff you know okay. i can't remember if, if marco played bass on that or i just remember that's how it happened wow and that yeah. becomes such a massive i mean that, that absolute radio play that like seems every day still i read somewhere that that um, paul had forgotten that mick talbot he wanted mick talbot to play on that track when you're all in the pub and then suddenly paul remembered and went brendan you gotta say up we need to get back you know, get mick on it i can't remember that i'm sure that it sounds like 
<laughs> Sounds yeah, quite likely. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about Steve Winwood as well. So Steve Winwood pops in and plays on Pink on White Walls, which is, I mean, again, oh, yeah. such yeah. a stunning track, right? Yeah. Yeah. He came down and he said, um, how are we going to do this? And I said, well, we're, we're all going to play together. And he said, what? A whole band? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you always do it like that? And I goes, yeah. And he said, wow, that must save a lot of time. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, but he was in traffic and Spencer Davis group. That's how they used to do it. They'd all play together. Obviously, you know, later in his career, he'd been loving tracks and starting with the drum or whatever type of process they used to use. And you're all big fans at that point. I mean, Paul's obviously digging into a lot. He's talked about like digging into a lot of traffic again yeah. and things like Nick Drake and stuff like that. You're all, you know, yeah. Yeah. So- I mean, Paul would make lots of mixed cassettes and, and just hand them out to people, you know. Yeah, all that sort of stuff would be on there. That's brilliant. I love that. I love the fact he's making cassettes at home for you, like doing little yeah. mixes, bringing them in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Denny Burks has a question. He said, I've been waiting for this one. So no pressure, Brendan. He says, this is a little bit geeky, all right? He, he admits himself. But he says, the recordings you created with Paul are among my favorites of his illustrious career. What I love about them the most are the actual sounds you were able to achieve from the studio. It's almost like I can visualize the room they are in. I love these types of old school room recordings. They definitely feature his live band of the time so well, for instance, Heavy Soul. Was this live room approach your idea or Paul's? Well, some amalgamation of the two. Um, and he says, I love all of, all of his work, but these live organic sounds are what I miss the most from his work. And do you ever foresee being able to give us that magic again? And he says, above all, thank you. Thanks, Denny. I think it was just a natural process when, when we realized that we wanted to do it live, bass, drums, guitar, vocals. Very important that the vocals were part of the live thing and it wasn't just a backing band. We started thinking, well, how, how can we incorporate the room sound and make everything sound as natural and as possible and make them sort of work with each other. So, so it's, so it's really cohesive. Yeah. We didn't add a lot of processing to the instrument mm-hmm. as well. So there wasn't a lot of compression. There wasn't a lot of EQ or even reverb vocals pretty dry on all those tracks. That feels to me like that's quite a hard thing to achieve in a studio where so you're not getting bleed. Because obviously if you're in a studio environment um, and Paul's singing away, the drums are louder than what he's singing, right? So how how do you manage that from a technical point of view? Yeah, I mean, records are all a lie because drums are louder (laughs) than vocals, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, of course. But uh, no, no, we'd have a little bit of separation. So Steve would be in a room at the back of the manor and we could kind of shut the door a bit. And uh, we'd place Paul in the position where his mic wouldn't be picking up any of those extraneous sounds. Yeah, it was a bit of hit and miss and, and working out where everybody was going to be and uh, trying to just keep the spill to a, a minimum because it can sound horrible if if you've got too much things going on in the room and it's all, you know, for this particular tracks. And is that trial and error? Or yeah, it's trial and error. Okay. Yeah, it's trial and error. And, and it's different for every song because of the dynamics. So you could have a really, really loud song. And obviously drums are bashing away, so we've got to hide Paul away somewhere, maybe in a booth, you, you know. But they'd still be playing live. It just wouldn't work having them all beside each other because it would just sound like a mess. 
There was the sounds of the studio book, which came out a little while back from Snowy, who's been on the podcast. And Paul was interviewed and he was asked about how important producers, engineers, um, you know, st- um, studio hands, how they have been in his output and the direction that an album takes. And I think these quote, I wanted to read it to you because I think it was really interesting what he said. And he said that, you know, the producer and the engineers, the studio hands, absolutely critical. You know, if you're lucky, you'll find a good team, producer and engineer and a method that will happen amongst you. However, that chemistry will only last for a period of time. And the clever thing is to know when to all move on and when it's in sync then great things can happen so was there a feeling i mean i know we're going to talk heavy soul and we'll talk um some of the other tracks that you worked on as well but is there a feeling that this 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 partnership can only be for a certain amount of time before you both need to go off and do something different yeah yeah definitely i mean um you know you make a record that you're happy with and you think oh i've got a formula now let's go and then you try it on the next project and it doesn't work because there's so many factors that are involved in making that particular record the one you liked. And things are almost always changing. People change. Everything's changing all the time. So you've got to move on. I want to talk Heavy Soul in a sec, but one thing I have to talk around this time was this wonderful Help album and the Smoking yeah. Mojo filters. Paul Weller, Paul McCartney, Noel Gallagher, a load of other people coming to the studio, like Simon Fowler and um, Johnny Depp and people. And so you got to work on that project, right? Yeah, that was a mad day. There was so many people there. I mean, when we um, mixed the track at the end of the day and it was like a cheese and wine party with so many people in the control room, I could hardly hear them. Through the speakers, you know, it's just constant chatter. <laughs> Get out of my room! Yeah. <laughs> and you didn't even know McCartney was turning up, did you? No, no, we didn't know he, he were turning up. Um, some gear turned up, and and the roadie said, "I've got Paul's gear for you." And I said, "Well, Paul's gear's already here." And it was Paul McCartney, so he <laughs> brought it all in. And then um, Mac had turned up himself, and we were in Studio Two, which is the Beatles. Oh, so you're back at Abbey Road, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, back at Abbey Road. Sorry, I didn't mention that. And um, he went over to this sort of window at the side of the control room, pulled a screen down that nobody knew was there, and he said, Ringo got caught behind that one day. <laughs> he couldn't get out. <laughs> and then he said to me, um, what do you want me to do? We'd already put down the track because Paul wanted it. He actually wanted it down before... Macca came along. Oh, well, he didn't want to be playing in front of him. Well, he just wanted it down before he came along. And so the bass was already done. I said, well, why don't you play a bit of Wurlitzer? He goes, all right. We went downstairs and he had a really nice, beautiful Wurlitzer. I'd never seen one like it. And I said, oh, that's really nice. He said, yeah, when, um, when the band split up, we all took our, we all had choices about what instruments we could take. So I took that one. And obviously he was talking about the Beatles. <laughs> just, when, just when the band's <laughs> <laughs> just, just that little thing yeah. <laughs> I love that Heavy Soul we move again to another studio this time it's Van Morrison's studio yeah in Bath yeah can't remember the name of it but was it Wall Hall Wall Hall that's it yeah Moving studios adds something different to the album. I mean, it's not always the most convenient things, I guess, if you if you get somewhere and you like it, like the manor, but the manor had closed down, yeah? The manor had closed down, so we had to find somewhere else. We tried Ridge Farm, and Wall Hall was really nice, really nice. It wasn't quite the same as the manor, but, yeah, it was good. It's a much more... Um, edgier sound yeah. much kind of rougher sound I would say um, I mean still live still played that way yeah. and it was really interesting because I've just got back into the vinyl we were talking about before we started I got the album again on vinyl 
And it's such a different listen because I've been listening to it on like the Alexa speaker on CD. And side two starts with an instrumental. And you're like, that's really, like, you don't notice that when you're listening. You know, you just listen to uh, things in a completely yeah. different way. You know, it starts with, I think it's Heavy Soul Part Two, isn't it? As an instrumental. Yeah. I mean, we always, um, especially Paul always thought of a record as two sides. We weren't, we weren't thinking CDs. You think this, um, so it was very, yeah, it was very important. What was the next track? Or the first track on the, right, on the, 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 the set up that mood for the second listen after you'd spinned over the, but I mean, it, you know, on the first album, there's, uh, if you listen at the very end of the first, I think it's the first part, there's quite a lot of, um, it sort of goes on for the needle will stay on the record for about a minute. And if you listen carefully, you can hear Paul shout, bring back vinyl. <laughs> That's on the first solo album, I think. I remember that because I remember doing my mate recording. I had it on CD and I remember doing my mate recording on cassette. And he goes, um, he goes, oh, mate, there's a load of talking. (laughs) I was like, that's not me. That's on the thing. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to take that out. That's just Paul shouting into a a record (laughs) deck and and it's being recorded through the needle. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's so cool. I love that. Let's talk brushed on this album. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is bonkers. It was a single, <laughs> remarkably. First single, I think. And there's loads of experimental sounds on it. That feels like a proper. If we talk, talk about Lynch Mob, I mean, I know it's not a remix, but it feels yeah. like a remix. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's a bit more like a, a remix vibe, but it's a, it's a, it's a song, and it's um, it's got all those elements used used in the remix, doesn't it? So, yeah, that was that was fun. That was. Really good single, I think. Paul's really good at crediting. I mean, this has been so easy on this podcast to find people because he's so good at crediting people for the work they've done, which most musicians from other research have done, you know, are not. I think around this time you're getting like arrangement credits and things like that. So it's not just, he's valuing everything you're bringing to the party. Yeah, no, he's really, um, yeah, that, that was really great for him to do all that, you know, right from the first album. Yeah, it was really a thing that I like doing messing about with the, the arrangement maybe or changing the ending or getting a really good intro, especially for a single. You've got to have a great intro. So yeah, it was something I really like doing. And again, you bring your, um, your musical talents to this album. We get a bit of accordion for you on, um, I should have been there to inspire you. Can't remember that. And, and mini Moog. Oh yeah. Mini Moog. What yeah, the I'm hell is, what the heck is a mini Moog? Yeah. I can play the piano accordion. That's the instrument I learned when I was a kid. You see, when I was doing the folk stuff, I can't remember being on. Maybe I am. I haven't heard it for years, so I'll have to check that out. Yeah, have a look. You might be missing some royalties there, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> and harmonium. So let's. Yeah, what's a mini moog? And uh, and harmonium was on driving nowhere. Again, these are great songs, aren't they? God, you forget. Yeah, yeah the um, moog is just a. Well, it's it's probably the most famous synthesizer um, from the states, early seventies. Probably yeah, mid seventies. Just a monophonic synthesizer that you can create sounds on, and it's been heard on a million records. What about the harmonium? Harmonium is like a, um, it's a bit like a church sort of keyboard that you pump with your feet. Sounds a bit like an accordion, so it's got that bellows sort of sound. So yeah, I think that is definitely on that track. There's a time at which, as well, you go on the road with Paul and the band. Yeah, yeah. And you're adding in what sound effects playing live? Yeah, what's the what's the role? And, and what, what, when was that? Do you remember? Um, I think it was '98, so that would have been the Heavy Soul album tour. Yeah, I just played. Um, I played 
Wurlitzer on a few things, a bit of piano accordion, and then I, I had some uh, some of my effect sounds that I'd fly into some of the tracks live. I'd, I'd just play them off a keyboard. I, I had samples. And so, yeah, that was really good fun. So let me think. So the band around this time is what, um, Matt Dayton? Yeah, I think, yeah, Matt was in the band. Definitely. Yeah, and Ernie McCone? Okay, yeah. Guess. Yeah, that's yeah. that period of time. Did you go to the famous Paris trip where they both got put in prison? <laughs> No, I was in Japan at that time. No, no, I missed that one. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have been the calming influence, friend. Yeah. <laughs> Given that the whole journey that we talked about here started out with that and you in a band. Yeah. Again, this is another different take. You're stepping out of the studio, presumably not the comfort zone being on the tour and on the stage at that point, because it's been so yeah. long since you've done that stuff. But you know, was that real buzz? Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm doing very little compared to all the others. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just sort of there doing little stuff, bits of things. So it was, yeah, it was, e- it was, it was easy compared to all the other musicians, but, um, yeah, it was fun. I enjoyed it. But also it's like, it's so massive at that point, isn't it? I mean, Stanley Road has been such a huge success, millions of albums and Paul's playing at some really big venues. We're doing like the Crystal Palace and things like that. So yeah, yeah. this is not like those little club gigs that he was doing back in the, you know, in the early nineties and that first album and stuff again. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was great. I was so delighted for him, you know, that in those, how many years was it? Like six or seven years, he'd really come right back to the fore. Bit of vengeance. As part of that, did you get to do any things like later with Jules Holland and stuff like that as part of the band? Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, he did a special later that I did. We did a Top of the Pops where we played um, Peacock Suit and one other track. We played two tracks on, on Top of the Pops Live. That's right. Yeah. I remember right. Rick Bexel telling me about this. Yeah. 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 yeah and it, yeah, that, that was great because they didn't really have any live music on the show as far as I knew then. And they usually didn't have. Oh, it's playing two tracks either. So it was a bit of a special one. It's sort of heliocentric. And again, we go to a different studio. So this is partly recorded at, named after the studio, Chris Difford's place down yeah. in, down yeah. in Rye in Sussex. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. How are we finding these studios? Is this a, is this a job for you? Is this, you know, as, as producer and engineer and all that? Um, I don't think I found that, that one. I mean, it's just that there, there weren't that many residentials. So you were pretty limited. I mean, we, we, we also went to Rockfield for a bit on the Heavy Soul record. So there was Rockfield, Ridge Farm, Chris's place, Manor had gone, and probably a few others, and that's it. So you were sort of limited, and we did like that vibe of going to going away and, and, and getting a lot done in a short space of time. Now, again, there's a few stories behind a couple of these songs. So here's the keeper, a bit of glockenspiel on there. But I think I'm right in saying, again, this is a sample. Oh, yeah, no, no, we sampled the real glockenspiel, yeah. And then I just play on the, on the keyboard. So we used it on that track and one of the other songs, uh, which I've got on the title of now. I mean, obviously Paul's can visualize things very well, but how is he communicating what he wants to get across on a song or how are you building this up and going, what this needs is a bit of this sample glockenspiel? It's just trying loads of ideas, you, you know, and, um, you sort of know it in 30 seconds, whether it's going to work. Yeah. Loads of, I mean, Paul, Paul's really open-minded, so he'll he'll actually indulge you and anybody who's got an idea in the room. Yeah, it's a very creative space, so that, that that's how those those things happen. You say that. I mean, one of the things on that one, there's some um, there's a credit for no, um, it. Just says noises, and then it says beer tops. 
beer tops, Bren, Clive, and Paul. <laughs> so at some point, you just go, do you know what? We're having a beer. This does sound good. But I love the fact that anything can, you know, you're creating yeah. music out of whatever's in the room. Like yeah. even Bev Bevan was talking about, um, on the podcast recently, he was talking about one of the songs. What was it? An ELO song. And, uh, you think it's, a, you know, him banging a cymbal and it's not. It's him banging the fire extinguisher. Yeah. That's on Mr. Blue Sky. Yeah. yeah I didn't know that's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Post heliocentric, Paul starts working with Simon Dye and he starts producing bits himself as well. So was that when your connection together came to an end at that point? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, um, I did a track on, um, one of his later albums, the double album. That's right. The album 22 Dreams, 2008. Yeah. That was, um, yeah. I mean, we've had sort of 12 years, life changes and different things. You know, we didn't fall out or anything, but it, you know, it's, um, I still contact him now and again. Nothing lasts forever. Yeah, I mean, you were so busy around this period as well. I mean, not just yeah. with the Weller stuff, but we mentioned remixes. There's like the Oasis Champagne Supernova, which the you have to, you know, the people have to check out. But Ocean Color Scene was such a massive part of your life and world in terms of their albums at that point too, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, from 2000, and, no, 1996, yeah. So we're talking, what, from like Riverboat Song period yeah, onwards? Yeah. yeah, so we did like three albums. And again, it was the same with them, you know, lots of songs, recording uh, lots of B-sides, you know, all their singles had four or five B-sides as well, so... I got that B-side album's just been re-released for the Record Store Day on vinyl. Was it B-sides, free-sides? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I, so I bought that, and you go... Another one again where you go, Christ, at the time, like the amount of material, but these B-sides are unbelievable. I know. I mean, they it could have been another album, actually, couldn't it? I think Oasis did that as well. They had a lot of B-sides that could have made another album for them at that time, which would have been, you know, really good release and in hindsight maybe they wish they had <laughs> I don't know a <laughs> <laughs> um, couple of other questions from the fans right Britpop Memories on Twitter says I've been hoping you get Brendan on at some point ask him if he has a name for that whooshing noise he made his trademark effects during the 90s whooshing noise a siren probably a siren I love this little box of tricks that you would have had. Um, Andy Picken on Twitter. Tell him how much I love the Society record and ask him oh, if there's a chance of him and Jamie making anything else. So this was your own project. This was you and Jamie was an oh, artist, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, Jamie was in a in a in a band called Beggars that I produced. They were on Heavenly. And after the band split up, we kept in touch and just started messing about in the studio. And we ended up doing an album which came out on Virgin. But um, no, no, we won't be doing any more. He's um, living in America now and working out there. So Paul Weller's most recent album is a, is it a triple or a double? A double album, which was, um, again, we talk about B-sides. It was like B-sides and remixes, but more recent. So you know, it's like the Fly on the Wall box set that you were part yeah, of yeah. back in the day. But he's got like a new one, more recent. Um, and there's a track on there called Rip the Pages Up Vocal Version. And I'm just reading it. Yeah, yeah. Sleeve notes, right? So he says, this is an old demo that I'd done with Brendan Lynch way, way back in the 90s. Nothing became of it and was forgotten. And years later, someone sent me a bootleg seven-inch of our demo. I mean, how did that get out? Which sounded great, and I don't know why it was left off whatever album we were working on at the time. A short time later, or many years, Brendan got in touch to see if I wanted to revisit and finish it. This was when I was making 22 Dreams. So it nearly went on there, but didn't fit sonically. So I'm very glad to hear it once more in a different light. It's very Lynch Mobs 90s groove. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, no, I got that album a couple of months ago. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, a really nice track to do. Again, yeah, I mean, it would have been nice if it had come out earlier as well. I always thought it was a good one. But. That was initially created like back in what heavy soul heliocentric time. No, it would have been uh, heliocentric. And then, um, and what made you want to revisit that track then? I think I just found it on my computer. Or I, had, I found a demo on my 
said, wow, this was really good. It could, um, we should finish this. I mean, there's probably other tracks like that as well that I've just lost. Very prolific. You know, we go and they, let's, um, Brent, I just want to put down this demo and then it would get, probably get forgotten, you know. Is there like a massive archive of stuff? You know, in like the, the minute we're getting, we still get all this Beatles stuff and you get like all yeah. the different takes and, you know, the different versions and they're constantly kind of repackaging from that time when it seems like Paul was so prolific. Is there a lot of stuff that would exist in the archive or just would, would it have just been bin? I think there are some, yeah, there are definitely some things, yeah, that weren't considered good enough or just um, forgotten about sometimes, you know. Paul's got a really good memory, so I doubt he would have forgotten anything that was really good. But yeah, I think there are some good... Well, maybe one day, fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, I should also, we mentioned Carleen Anderson earlier on as well. There was also this album, Blessed Burden, in 1998, the oh, yeah. release, which, yeah. which should have been a massive, massive success because it's a mm. wonderful LP. But again, involved, I mean, Paul was heavily involved in that, but again, you were involved yeah. in the production on that LP, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, and Mick was involved, and um, I think some of the young disciples as well. Yeah, I mean, she, she was just a pleasure to work with, a voice like that, just amazing. Really, um, I couldn't believe I was there, you know, in the same studio with her doing those songs. Because you've got a job to do, right? You can't be focusing yeah. on the performance in yeah. terms of like loving the performance as a fan, right? You've got to be yeah. doing your job. But yeah. there must be a bit of you. Sometimes you're like, oh shit, what was I, what was I meant to be doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I've got a really bad memory, so I have to write everything down on sheets of paper. So um, that's how I was able to focus. But, uh, but yeah, sometimes you do, you, you just turn into a fan. You're going... Wow, that was a really good take. <laughs> going, yeah, but is it is it the one? I don't know. I didn't write. I didn't write anything down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about Primal Scream as well, because so much of your time has been you know working with them, and even to the point like Bobby Gillespie's most recent album with Jenny Beth was part of you, and mixed by Max Hayes again. And we also get Max on the podcast as well. But, yeah. So Utopian Ashes was again a really recent project, but um, yeah, the Primals have been such an important part of your career as well, haven't they? Yeah. No. Again, um, really. Uh, just like Paul, um, incredible music fans. That's what they live for. They live for music. It's really nice to be working with people like that because believe it or not, a lot of people involved in the music business aren't really into music. And I discovered that the very first day I started working in the studio. I just thought, wow, you know, it's just a job. Or it was at that time. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are. Anyway, these guys are total obsessives. And again, very creative, always doing something new, trying to push for something different. So yeah, I really enjoyed the records I, I made with them. Paul's talks a lot about wanting to move forward and, um, you know, do new things and take it in a different direction and things. But the same is true of you. You know, what is it that keeps you inspired? What keeps you motivated to keep doing this, keep producing music, keep working with people? Yeah. I mean, I just love it at the end of the day when I can take something home and have a listen to it at home. I really, really love that and just listen to a new song and writing out the score for it. I'm just in, I'm, it's in a total mindful state. And I'm, I'm not thinking of anything else. And it's, um, yeah, it's just, I'm, I'm just really lucky to have that feeling or, or those feelings when I'm making records. Is there a moment throughout that journey with Paul that would be your favorite? Is there a moment where you went, actually, if you were talking about the kind of, you know, the crest of a wave, that kind of peak point? Um, oh, I don't know. Um, Wildwood was a big, especially when we did that track, I knew it was really good. Particular song for what? Yeah, this is good. We're not going to get this one any better. This particular song, anyway, probably that. There's a lot there to be proud of, isn't there? If you think about it, and also like such a short period of time, really, in the space yeah. of what's that like? Ten years, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was busy during that time. <laughs>
a lot of late nights as well by the sound of things but i mean late nights for paul if he's writing after hours and all yeah. that as well but it was yeah. it was pretty full-on this isn't you worked all of you didn't you oh yeah yeah especially with paul you know he's very uh he's got a real way that he wants to be in the studio even after christmas we'd always go in on the nearest day to new year's eve that was a monday say it was Usually we'd always be in the studio on the third or sometimes the second because he just wanted to get back in and do something. It's funny, isn't it? Because that's life for like normal yeah. people. Like that's our job. You know, that's what we yeah. have. That's the same, same mentality. Yeah, absolutely. So he, he wanted to be in the studio straight away doing something, whether, as I said, whether it was demos or usually it was demos after Christmas, but I'm sure he's the same now. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that's changed in one eye. So the amount of material that's coming out continually yeah. is, is incredible, isn't it? This has been so lovely, Brendan. Um, I have to ask you what you're working on at the minute. What's coming next? I'm just working on some stuff with Charlotte from the Volume Corp. Charlotte played in the Noel Gallagher's band. Ah, and cool. She, okay. And she's, and she's got her own projects called the Volume Corp. And, um, I'm just working with a, a new young singer as well, who I don't want to mention. Yeah, because I I don't know if she wants to. You don't want to jinx it. <laughs> yeah, you know, just messing about. I, I sort of mess about with demos and put backing tracks together that people might use. I've got my own studio up in London, but a lot of old vintage gear. So yeah, it's just a nice hub to go to. You know? I uh, work there when uh, when I can, but also rent it out. You know, it's like a proper proper working studio. Yeah, the project is like a proper professional studio. Anyone can hire it. So we have we have lots of people. And it helps pay the bills and everything, you know. I should ask you about um, Max Hayes before we go, um, or Martin Max Hayes, as he yeah. is on most of the records, right? You've had such a close working relationship for so yeah. very long, and he was such an important part of that Weller mix at that time too. So what does he bring to the party? And what do you call him, Martin or Max? Max. Well, Max, yeah, no, he's, um, he's very dedicated and hardworking. He won't give up on something. He's very talented, great again sounds. I think we um, had a good working relationship. I was an engineer start when I started first off we working with Paul and Paul said to me, Why don't you just produce and uh, forget about the engineer? And I said, Well, can't do that because that's what I do. He said, No, try it. And it was the best thing I ever done. You're just sitting at the back of the room listening to the song without having to worry about all the knob twiddling and the and the meters. Max is very competent with that. Yeah, he sort of knows what I'm gonna say before I say it. As you say that, it's so interesting, the fact, I mean, Paul's put so much trust in you then as a producer when you didn't have loads of experience as a producer, really, did you? No, none, none. I mean, I've just done some remixes for people, which is kind of producing our stuff, uh, I suppose. But um, no, I do a lot of remixes and, and not get credited for it. I'd be working with somebody else, but I could be pretty much doing it. And it was great. I loved it. But uh, no, no full-on productions, just sort of demos with people and trying to get better at stuff. Yeah, he put his faith in me. It has really changed my life. And that's a, that's a story that we have heard so often on this podcast, that type of thing, where you go, you know, people who are, like in the Style Council, people who are so young. Even you think about Whitey, right? It's like, you know, a 17-year-old drummer that has an yeah. audition. He's, he's on the radio the next day and the tour the week after. You know, it's incredible, really. Hey, look, Brendan, this has been so lovely having you on. I should thank you, Johnny, your son, for suggesting this and, and suggesting that we you come on a podcast. Is this your first podcast ever? 
Yes. <laughs> yes. And this isn't the norm, is it? For producers and engineers, you know, you're not doing interviews and this kind of thing very no, often. I'm not comfortable with this at all. But thanks for making it easy for me. Oh, well, bless you, Brendan. Thank you for coming on. I've got two final questions for you before you go, okay? So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It could be The Jam. We could be taking you yeah. back to those early days, that love of punk and all that. It could be The Style Council or it could be Paul Weller solo. What are you going to go with? Yeah. Well, I'm going to say Wildwood again. And I know we've been overrated it in this yeah or what Wildwood it's an interesting track because I've seen that live so many times yeah. and you've seen him I've seen him do it on an electric he's yeah. done it on acoustic there was like the remix of the, the Porter's Head remix oh yeah unbelievable it's such a versatile song which goes back to the magic of the words and the melody and you could reversion that and then the, Eliza Carthy did a cover of it it's an incredible song yeah I mean Porter's Head rang me up when they when they did the remix they said where's the click track you know, lots of records. I said, "Well, no click track; it's all live." So they had to go away and sort of somehow get it into some sort of. There's <laughs> <laughs> a brilliant B side, actually. I should say you did a remix of "Science" on that one. Yeah, with Pablo from Psychonauts. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got yeah. loads of <laughs> loads of scratching. Yeah, yeah. It's wicked. Really cool. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Final question, Brendan. So the purpose of this podcast is to hear stories from people like yourself who had these connections with Paul Weller. But it really, honestly, I created the podcast because I had my one big regret from giving up my radio presenting career, which was I never got to interview Paul Weller. So yeah. I created a podcast to make that happen. If this ever happens, Brendan, if I ever get to interview Paul, what should I ask him? Why is it taking so long? <laughs> I ask that every day. But why has it taken so long? Because most people just use, I mean, you just rang up the studio and got a bloody job for Christ's sake. Yeah. Maybe that's what I need to do. Yeah. You need to go and sort of stalk him. <laughs> go down to back barn. Yeah. And, uh, Camp out the front on the lawn. <laughs> Drive down there in a scooter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Brendan, thank you so much, man. I love talking to you. As I said at the beginning, before we started recording, there's an element of this podcast, right? When when we do eventually get to the end, if we get to the end, there are some people, if I don't get them on the podcast, it'll feel like my 1986 Mexico World Cup Panini sticker album where it was incomplete. And there are people on this, if I don't get them on the podcast, it will feel incomplete. And you were one of those, I have to say. Because if I didn't get your sticker in the album, mate, I'd have been gutted. So I'm I'm honoured that you've been on, man. Thanks for asking me, Dan. And good luck with your pursuit of Paul. <laughs> well, thank you. And thank you for the music. You know, these albums mean so much to all of us. So oh, thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, mate. My thanks once again to Brendan Lynch for joining me on the podcast. Like I say, such an important part of my discovery of Paul Weller at the beginning of his solo years. And those unbelievable albums, Wildwood, Stanley Road, Heavy Soul, just absolute crackers. And clearly a wonderful partnership of its time as well. Do dig into the show notes for this podcast to find out more information, including some of the songs that we talked about there, those remixes, and much, much more. And whilst you're on the website, do yourself a favour, head into my store. You can get yourself your official podcast t-shirt for the summer or a mug for a cuppa. A few shout-outs this week, just by buying a virtual coffee, you can earn yours. Hi, Dan. This is from Sean Wilson. Just to give you a big shout out and say thanks for all of this. Who would have known this would become what it has? Thanks to you, mate. Well done, Sean. Cheers, Sean. Much appreciated for the coffee, my friend. Hello to Alan Anderson, who says, Fantastic work, Dan. Love listening on my drives to and from work in Adelaide. Wow. Feels like I'm in my own little Weller world. Love it. Hello to Roger Clark. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hi, Roger. Hello to Phil Baker. Hi, Phil. Hello to Dan as well. Another Dan. Thank you, sir. Hello to Georgia Moroso. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee as well. If you want to get involved, just head to my store 
paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Do spread the word on social media. If you can share this episode on your channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that'd be lovely. You can find me on Twitter, get in touch, at wellerfanpod, or on Instagram and Facebook, just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.